if you remember, um, this is a quiz, how Steve ended his talk last night, all the way 24 hours, not even, right? 22 hours ago, or a lifetime ago, um, where he was speaking of wisdom and talking about the luminous nature of heart, of mind, and wisdom really being uh, to rest in that, just to rest, which about this time of the retreat might sound good, just rest instead of trying so hard all the time. I want to talk a bit about that tonight, about resting. This is from Nyoshal Kempo. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought. Like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Okay, now remember the first line, rest in natural great peace. We get lost in the other part. (laughs) This resting in natural great peace, in the luminous nature of heart or mind, is possible through this exquisite balance of innate wakefulness, of vivid wakefulness, and the heart, the mind of non-clinging. These two together. And what I want to talk about tonight, in many ways we talk about it all the time, is this balance of our practice, and just one way of talking about this balance through wise attention, that can allow us again and again to rest in natural great peace in vivid wakefulness and letting go. Now this balance, this exquisite balance, is something that really, I'm sure, we all experience in many moments. If you're not looking for it to last through the whole day or the whole retreat or the rest of your life, if you're content to notice a moment they manifest really just as one of those moments of pure presence. Nothing specific, good, bad, pleasant, unpleasant, need be happening. An example from the poet Denise Levertov. Just these moments. She calls the poem living. The fire in leaf and grass, so green it seems each summer the last summer. The wind blowing, the leaves shivering in the sun, each day the last day. A red salamander, so cold and so easy to catch, dreamily moves his delicate feet and long tail. I hold my hand open for him to go, each minute the last minute. Just how that exquisite sense of presence reveals the universe to us, the whole truth, and it doesn't have to be anything special, and it's nothing special we do. That's the catch, isn't it? We can't make it happen, and we spend so much time trying. But we do experience it. Just the other day, two different people were 
expressing experiences like this in different ways. One describing sitting in the dining room and just being so present with hearing. And if you think of what are you hearing? You're hearing spoons crash and dishes rattle and scooping and scraping and chairs pushing. But that exquisite presence with hearing, just so so here, so resting in the moment. And someone else describing um, walking down by Gaston Pond, and it was more an experience of seeing, just noticing the leaves and the water and the animals, and it just became such a moment of presence with the infinite movement of the universe. Different aspects reveal themselves. In a moment like that, whatever it is that's happening, there's a sense, at least for me, how I would describe it, that pure presence of of real fulfillment. It's so clear there's nothing lacking and nothing to want. In those moments, you don't sit there thinking, how can I balance my concentration and energy? How can I get my uh, awareness to be more choiceless? You know? I mean, these things are important, but the point of all of the skillful means is to re-recognize our natural home and the luminous nature of awareness, of pure presence. In a moment like that, skillful means are not necessary. You know, and we can't hold on to it. We can't make it happen. And the all, I think, my opinion, of all of the skillful means and the instructions we give and the ways that we work in our practice are not to make progress to get to some state like this state. This isn't a state that we can hold on to. It's resting at ease in whatever arises. Our skillful means are to help us come back into this balance of vivid wakefulness and letting go on all the different various levels of perception, from the very refined states that come from deep concentrated practice to a moment of watching movement on the lake. One isn't better than another. This uh, resting in natural great peace is our birthright. It's What's true for us, it's more learning about how to recognize and trust this rather than taking our refuge in all the seductions of papancha and our mind and our interpretations. So I've talked about the vivid wakefulness, the pure presence. I just want to read an example from Dujim Rinpoche about the letting go aspect. Saying, quietly sitting, body still, speech silent, mind at peace, let thoughts and emotions, whatever rises, come and go without clinging to anything. Now, what does this state feel like? Dujim Rinpoche used to say, Imagine a person who comes home after a long, hard day's work in the fields and sinks into her favorite chair in front of the fire. She's been working all day and knows that she has achieved what she needed to achieve. There is nothing more to worry about, nothing left unaccomplished. She can let go completely of all her cares and concerns, content simply to be. 
Ah, just relax into your armchair in front of the fire, but don't turn on the TV, (laughs) which is where we go with that. We think if we relax, we can't just be wakeful. We've got to dull out, and that's that's where we go adrift on the relaxing side of things. So just imagine. Could you imagine practicing like that? Nothing to worry about. Nothing more to achieve. Content simply to be. I mean, is that a possibility in mindfulness practice? It is. This is a rhetorical question. (laughs) (laughs) So when you meditate, it is essential to create the right inner environment of the mind, of the heart. Effort and struggle come from not being spacious. The spacious not meaning space in that way. The spaciousness of the non-reacting heart and mind. So these moments, little moments of equipoise, a heart and mind of non-clinging but vividly present and awake. How do we get there? How do we make it stay? We're going to try. Of course, that's what makes it go. So most of our skillful means, as we talk about, is ways of bringing our inner environment, mind and heart, into this balance of wakefulness and letting go. And that's why we talk from so many different angles, because conditions are always changing. Whether we talk about balancing the five faculties, you know, of faith and energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, whether we talk about balancing the seven factors of enlightenment, which are mindfulness, and then the three active ones of uh, investigation, rapture, and energy itself, or effort, and the three calming ones of calm, concentration, equanimity. We talk about balancing them. We might just talk about wise effort. We might talk about tonight, what I'm going to talk about is wise attention. And it's easy to turn any of these into a project, into something to do perfectly, into something to get. And it's just the same old thing. We get sidetracked into the arising appearances, which in this case might be energy and concentration, instead of recognizing that the, the skillful means is in service of this balance of being purely present. And then we let go of skillful means. So notice how we get caught in the idea of progress. And we can turn anything into getting caught in the idea of progress, as if there's some stable place to get to. And it's so easy to forget that liberation of heart, of mind, isn't about getting anything or getting rid of anything, but about seeing the shift in the heart and mind relationship to experience, to ourselves. It's really about recognizing what is true, what we really are, what experience truly is, in a different way. We don't actually have to change any experience, and we can anyway. Only our recognition of things is affected. We recognize natural great peace more readily, with more trust, with more faith, and hopefully we get less seduced 
by all the diversions. So let me talk about that a bit. I'm sure you've noticed in all the various instructions that are given, both when we were doing the morning instructions in the answers to questions in the hall, how you can pick anyone and within a day or two, someone will say the opposite. Be precise, be spacious, really note every single moment. And then you come into an interview and we say, would you go for a walk and stop paying attention for a while? It's very confusing. And if you try to do all of it, it's like you'll just explode. You know, how do I be precise and spacious at the same time? How do I be non-clinging but never you know, let one arising moment of experience come without being right there and noting it? How do I connect and sustain and at the same time be really receptive and non-manipulative? You try to do it all at once and you feel like you're going crazy. You know? Tonight I want to talk about, add another one to your arsenal. <laughs> I want to talk about something that's translated as wise attention. A reference point to use, I'll describe it in a minute, but the short definition is how we pay attention and what we pay attention to. I'll go there in a minute. Okay, so imagine a moment like I was describing before, just of simple Simplicity of presence, nothing special, but there's really that equipoise, that balance of heart and mind that allows the resting in awareness to be really so noticeable, so tangible, and whatever's arising is fine. And how fulfilling that is without our even realizing it. And how in the next moment... A smell can arise, or a sound can arise, or a thought can arise, say an unpleasant sound. And from this moment of just pure presence of being, that sound, I can't believe it. That person's opening the window again. You know, and in a moment, we're completely entranced by the particular experience, it's pleasant or unpleasant, our reactions to it, We're entranced and seduced, and even if we know what's happening, there's a way we've completely lost sight or recognition of even the possibility of resting at ease in natural awareness. We might be aware of unpleasant sound and not liking, and it reminds me of my father and all of this, but we're really entranced by it. How do we get so seduced? How do we get so distracted? Because what really happens, it's not that somehow the luminous nature of mind and heart is gone and there's only this being lost and clinging and aversion. It's just that we've gotten distracted. We've stopped paying attention to resting at ease and we're back into me and mine and you and yours and how things should be and blah-de-blah-blah. So when we talk about the mind and heart that's undistracted, it's really the mind and heart that can recognize the potential of resting at ease, even when all this other mishigas is going on. Because it's going to go on. Resting at ease doesn't mean this other stuff stops. It means it goes on and we recognize just what's happening. But natural great peace doesn't care, really, what's happening. So we lose recognition 
the truth doesn't vanish, but we're taking refuge in the wrong place. This would be an example of unwise attention. Wise attention, as the Buddha describes it, how we pay attention, which is a lot of mindfulness, and I'll say a bit more, but you've heard mostly that, and what we pay attention to, what is fit for attention and what is not. Now, all you self-judgers, I want you to be really aware of this because I can just know how self-judging immediately leaps to, that's right, All these negative things arising in my mind are bad. They're unfit for attention. And because I'm noticing them, I'm caught in unwise attention. That's not true. That's not what the Buddha was saying. Okay, he talks about wise attention, knowing what things are fit for attention and what are not. What is not fit for attention in this translation is anything that we pay attention to the way that we pay attention to it increases the torments of mind that are already present or allows torments of mind that have not arisen to arise. So, for example, that unpleasant sound, and you notice it, but you really go, yeah, it's really unpleasant. I really can't believe it. I'm so angry. And the more you pay attention to that, the more you get lost in anger or it can be desire. And you're sort of aware of it. I mean, you can describe it later what happened. But there's a way in the paying attention, just subtly paying attention in the wrong way to the wrong piece of the experience that really just revs it up. And I will describe this more. Whereas wise attention is that attention that the way we pay attention and what to, that allows arisen torments of mind and we all know what the torments are, right? Greed, hatred, delusion, and all their manifestations, allows them to diminish and allows wholesome states of mind and heart, wisdom, equanimity, calm, energy, compassion, to arise. Okay. Now, this is the place where it's important not to hear this through the veil of self-judgment and the judging mind. And I've probably said this before, but just to know, if you're aware that self-judging is sort of the strong backdrop, just know that you can't really trust your evaluations and perceptions of anything. (laughs) It's true, because they're all through that veil of, you know, everything you do is wrong and not good enough. So notice that. And if that's strong right now, take in what I'm saying and don't try to evaluate it. (laughs) Okay, so things that are not fit for attention or how we pay attention that increases suffering is not really a value judgment on what's arising. So, for example, it doesn't mean that if aversion or greed is arising and you pay attention to it, that's unwise attention. You know, the idea of the the unwholesome things are rising, that makes for more bad karma, and the more I pay attention to them. Sometimes it's not that they're getting worse, it's that we're just seeing them more, and it feels worse. That's not the same thing as really getting lost in spinning. So how we pay attention and what we pay attention to, starting with the how, which is mostly, as I've said, 
It's mindfulness, non-judging, kind, total attention to whatever's arising. I just want to describe it in two ways. The word, the Pali word, two words that's translated into English as wise attention, the words in Pali are yoniso manasikara. And Andy Olensky, you know, the uh, head of the study center, our Pali scholar, gave me his translation of it, which I really liked. Yoniso is from the word in Pali for womb. So he translates yoniso as womb-like or nurturing, held in protection, which I like because mindfulness is often spoken of as our protection. Mana means mind, and kara, manasikara, kara is from the word for action, the same word that kama comes from. So then he puts it all together and translates yoniso manasikara as an active quality of mind that is nurturing. So I really, to me, that really describes mindfulness. It's active, it's really awake and connecting with what's happening, but in a nurturing way, not with judgment, not with you know, liking or disliking, clinging or pushing away, but just holding it you know, in the arms of attention. I like that. So that's one way you can think of how we pay attention with wise attention. It gives us the ability to just recognize what's present because we're just, oh, yeah, this is what it is. And the second aspect, a way of, of really describing the freshness, the beginner's mind that comes with wise attention, with meeting what's happening with wise attention, nurturing, active, and this freshness, a sense of wonder is, is how I like to think of it. And uh, just describe an example. This summer I saw uh, a documentary on television about the well-known classical cellist Yo-Yo Ma. And he, I had never uh, seen him before. He was just lovely. What he was doing in this special was flying into Africa to meet some of the musicians of the Kalahari bush people. So he flew into this the Kalihari Desert in Africa and was basically sort of jamming with these, the, with the Bushman who was the main musician. And it was really fantastic. He gets out of the helicopter or whatever with this beautiful cello, you know, and God knows how much it must have cost. And when he'd play it, it's so resonant and the sounds. And the Bush, the Bush musician, the head musician, I just remember one of his instruments. It was literally an old oil can with a stick and a string. And he's playing on this. And I mean, it's real easy to, to get kind of some kind of cultural superiority or so, because, you know, compared to the resonance of the cello, it's a string and a stick and an oil can. You know, you can get some sounds out of it. Yo-Yo Ma was so filled with appreciation and wonder. There was no trace of my thing is better. It's like, wow, listen to the sounds he gets from this instrument. And he was totally appreciating it and trading instruments, you know, and having the, the musician show him how to do it. He said, well, I can't, I can't make it sound nearly as beautiful as you can, which was true. And, and just that sense of 
absolute freshness and delight and wonder that he could bring to something that one could easily write off as you know, a stick in an old oil can. So that kind of sense of freshness, you know, in a nurturing way, can we bring that to whatever happens to be arising? When we bring that quality of attention, that's the how of wise attention, when it's like that, it doesn't really matter so much what, because almost anything's fit for attention when we bring that quality, because there's no judging, there's no sense of referring back to me, there's no liking, disliking, building a story. It's just what is. So we could be as aware of, you know, the beauty of the leaves falling, aversion, greed, self-making, or some subtlety of rapture, and it really doesn't matter because that wonder, that nurturing act of quality brings us naturally into balanced awareness. So that's something to remember when we feel we're not in balanced awareness before you say, well, this thing that's happening is not fit for attention. (laughs) Watch out for that, please. Try just shifting the how first. Bring back in the freshness, the wonder, if you can. Now, the other times when we can bring in the part of looking at what we're paying attention to and maybe not quite recognizing clearly how we're paying attention in a way that leads to an increase of the torments. One good place to look at it is with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Those those experiences of feeling tone. Because it's easy to, to believe, to really think that there's pure mindfulness. You know, we're really present without clinging with what's happening. And it's not that what ha- what's happening gets more intense. That's fine. It's more that we really feel we're spinning deeper and deeper into some kind of wallowing sense of self and we don't really know what's going on or, or, or how the way we're paying attention is increasing it. I'm not about to give you a magic cure, you know, forget that. But I just want to point to a couple of ways that this happens very subtly. One is with the experience of Vedana, of feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We've talked about it a lot, and, and we're really often, of course it's not always the obvious aspect of experience, but more and more people are really tuning into it. And you might really be tuning in to a sound and you know it's unpleasant, or the taste of the food and you can recognize it as pleasant, but still it feels like there's some entrancement, some seduction going on, and we're somehow getting pulled in and not quite seeing why. I'd like to just point out something that just as clearer and clearer to me in my practice and more and more subtle is the subtle aspects of this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, of our conditioning around it, my conditioning anyway, I don't think I'm alone, where even when I'm aware of it, there can be very subtly, almost unnoticed, or actually unnoticed, the value judgment or the interpretation that even though I know it's pleasant, I'm having a pleasant experience here and I'm trying not to get attached, there's this subtle belief way back there that pleasant actually means good. If it's pleasant, it's going right. And, of course, unpleasant means bad. 
it's going wrong or I'm going wrong, you know. And even we're sitting here noticing unpleasant, 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 we're not quite noticing what's really going on is unpleasant, it's wrong, unpleasant, it's bad, unpleasant, how can I change it, you know. Very, very subtle. So we don't even notice, and that's where the unwise quality of attention comes in. Neutral, which I forgot to even mention because that's how we relate to it, it doesn't count. If we even notice it, it doesn't count. That's why a lot of people are really uncomfortable with calm. We struggle, we struggle, we struggle, we get the calm, and it's like, hey, nothing's happened. Let's whip up some suffering. At least then I feel like I'm working. I read in uh, one of the suttas the Buddha talking about some of the hindrances and how they get sort of increased or whipped up through unwise attention to certain aspects. I really see it as this pleasant, unpleasant, subtle conditioning. He's saying that sense desire arises due to unwise attention to the attractive aspect of an experience, not just noticing pleasant, but the attractive aspect, the subtle sense of gratification that comes from a pleasant experience. I'll give you an example. One time I was on retreat, I think it was last year, I don't know, and I was eating pretty mindfully, eating, noticing pleasant, unpleasant, chewing, whatever, and there was some homemade bread, which I would bite, chew, this is really pleasant, this is really good, liking, and then that subtle, yeah, this is really nice. And although I thought I was mindful, there's the unwise attention was sort of getting sucked into really how nice this makes me feel. And we can, I don't know if you can get the slight shift. It's not just noting pleasant, pleasant. It's pleasant, yeah, it's really pleasant. <laughs> opening a bakery, getting the uh, recipe, blah, blah, blah. Then the bite would be gone and I'd be right back, okay, you know, chewing, pleasant, unpleasant, whatever, really mindful again. The next bite, the same thing would happen as soon as the taste hit the taste buds. After about a piece, you know, I really started to notice that. So you get a sense of the, the, the unwise attention, a little seduced by the gratification of it, the real... Um, yeah, the attractiveness of it rather than just noticing pleasant. And often, it's so subtle, we don't want to give that up. Like we know if I just say pleasant, if I'm just aware of the pleasant, I don't feel that gratification quite so much. So we kind of don't want to really look at it too closely sometimes. But it's hard to notice. Buddha Dasa, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, the great Thai meditation master, forest monk, he says that, look at your life, look at the decisions you make. He says, he says this, now almost everything you do when you come down to it is for the sake of pleasant sensation. Look at the decisions you make and the things you do. But if you really look at pleasant sensation, how long does it last? It's gone. I find this in my practice over and over, more and more subtle. I'll think I'm just going along, being open, wise attention, meeting whatever's happening with freshness. And I at some point see this subtlety of being seduced by the attractiveness, the gratification of the pleasant. The pleasant might just be the thought, oh, now it's going how it's supposed to go. You could even be suffering 
And the thought is, but this is what's supposed to happen. And that's pleasant, you know, and seduced by it. There's a nice story from the Buddha's time about Ananda, his, um, his main attendant for 25 years, who was a very kind man, always taking care of the disciples and the people who came to the Buddha. And it's sort of a story about getting seduced and paying attention subtly to the wrong thing on the aspect of pleasant. Ananda was on a mission for the Buddha, and he passed by a well in a village. And one of the things monks could ask for was water, but you couldn't just go take it. So there was a young woman, a young outcast, you know, there's the the outcast, there's all the caste system at that time in India, and then the outcast. So anyone of any caste was supposed to have nothing to do with. And he asked her for water, and the woman, Pataki was her name, said, I'm too humbly born, I'm an outcast, I can't give you water. You know, you would defile yourself, basically. And he said, I'm not asking about your caste, I'm just asking for water. And that touch to her heart felt so touched, it was so joyful at that, at that you know, acceptance of her, that she gave Ananda the water, he thanked her and went away, and she followed him. And she followed him all the way back to the Buddha. And when she got there, she went up to the Blessed One and said, Oh Lord, help me. Let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells so that I may see him and take care of him because I love Ananda. The Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart and he said, Pataki, your heart is full of love, but you don't understand really your own emotions. It's not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice towards you and practice it towards others. I think that's very sweet. And how often we get entranced by the pleasantness, and it, in that entrancement we don't really see clearly what's happened. We're blinded by our being pulled into the pleasantness. And we can, as we know, end up doing all kinds of stuff in our life to where we look back and think, how did I get here? And a lot of it was, you know, step by step, very reasonable. This feels good, so I'll do it. You know, and down the road, it doesn't feel so good. But Okay, the other, not all the hindrances, but the Buddha spoke the same way about ill will as the hindrance. It's, it's the same. It's the um, unwise attention to the repugnant aspect of things. And again, you can see this. It can be here, it's good on retreat because often the thing that arouses our repugnance is so small that we somehow can't totally buy into that that sound is really the cause of all our suffering. But there's a way we get so, I can't believe that person would do something like that. I can't believe how loud that sound is, you know. I can't believe this pain in my back is still here after all the stretching I did. And there's some way we might be noticing unpleasant, unpleasant, but just that little bit of, uh, you know, really in there working and until we're whipping up the hindrance of ill will. So again, unwise attention, seduced by the repugnance and not seeing it. And it takes us off out of knowing what's happening. Just to quickly say, he does, not so much for sloth and torpor, 
but for restlessness and worry or remorse, he says it's uh, unwise reflection on disturbing thoughts, which you can relate to, right? I can't believe that. What did I do this for? And what if that happened? And over and over and unwise reflecting on it. And this is actually my favorite. Doubt can come about through unwisely reflecting on dubious matters. <laughs> he gives us an example of dubious matters. This is an example of unwise attention from the Buddha. This is how one attends unwisely. So this is sort of, we think these are Dharma thoughts, and it's really unwise attention. Was I in past time or was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? How was I in the future? Shall I be in the future or shall I not? And what shall I be? Considering what I was in the past, how will that affect what I am in the future? Or else he is perplexed about the present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? And if I am just thoughts and emotions arising, then what are you? As some people have been saying, and it just goes on and on and on. And it feels like Dharma thoughts. Unwise reflection on dubious matters leading to the hindrance of doubt. Okay, those are some examples from the Buddha of how unwise attention, and you can see it can be quite subtle. The first choice of once we recognize somehow we've gotten sucked away, we don't quite know what's what, the first choice of wise attention and first even noticing that we have a choice, that's the beginning of skillful means to recognize that there are moments in the practice when we really do have a choice where to let the mind dwell. There's moments when we absolutely don't have a choice, too. And there's the moments, again, of that exquisite balance when the question of choice doesn't even arise. But when we realize we're starting to spin in the torments, to recognize that we do have a choice is where we can use wise attention. It's mindfulness that gives us that moment of choice. And the first choice, of course, is always mindfulness, wise attention to the bare experience that's happening now. So, for example, in that seduction into the pleasant when I was eating the bread, the choice is not to start reflecting on what's going on and how come I'm getting it. It's to say, okay, what's happening right now? And feel the graininess of the bread in my mouth. Or notice the sweetness of the taste. Just come back into the present moment experience. Often, that's quite enough. Because a, a lot of the time, as we're getting really seduced, taking refuge in the wrong place, so to speak, it's not always huge storms. It's a lot more that we can really notice how it works in these subtle little experiences that are happening off and on all day long. So something like that, oh yeah, tasting, sweetness, liking, you know, you're right back. Even with something a little stronger, the first choice of wise attention is to just bring that freshness of kind awareness to what's happening. Give you another example, a kind of a bigger, bigger torment. 
One time I was staying in a friend's house in an island in Washington State, and I was there alone at night. I remember I was washing up, and I heard some sound, you know, just how you'll hear a sound in a house alone, and immediately the mind goes, oh, my God, somebody's breaking in. I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. I don't know the area. And the mind starts going into fear. And I really noticed, because I experimented with it, that there was a choice wise attention or unwise attention. When I kept paying attention to the thoughts, I was paying attention to them, but really with them. What if it is? No, that's probably not someone. You're just being foolish. You know, you're just caught in fear. What could that sound have been? I don't hear it again. The more I stayed with the thoughts, the more the the fear just kind of kept amping up. And I said, okay, just be with the sensations. Now, that's not denying the fear. I would feel the pounding of the heart. I was still washing my face, so then I'd just feel the sensations of the water, wash my face, the tension of the fear. And within really seconds, the whole thing just would calm back down again. And I was just at ease with what was happening, which included still some agitation. But the fear wasn't getting amped up. And then I would see how the mind just isn't content to stay with the bare experience and go, yeah, but what if, and this could be this, and this could be that, and what was that sound, and I better go look, and you know, I wonder what the emergency numbers are, the whole thing. And then I could have the choice to just feel the agitation, feel the water in my hands, and really within 10 seconds, this is just what's happening. So to play with that, to see the difference between that's really where unwise attention to the thoughts that led to spinning in them and increasing of an arisen torment. Or wise attention to just what's happening. The thoughts were happening too, but because of the pull of them, the attention to them wasn't really quite balanced, whereas being with the sensations could bring me into more balanced awareness. Now, I find this really a fascinating moment that happens over and over that moment of coming back into balanced awareness and seeing the mind that goes, yeah, but what if, and zooms back into the whole story, just whipping it up again, knowing that peace is available, knowing I don't need to do that, I have a choice. This is to, I borrow one of Buddha Das's phrases, he uses it in another context, For me, I really see that's like my mind is volunteering for suffering. (laughs) I have a choice, and I'm going to go towards suffering. Over and over and over. Now, see, if you're in a self-judging mode, you'll add that on top of it, but you don't need to. It's just a moment of pure fascination. Why do we do that? It's really amazing. And then to just come back again and again and again. That's not suppression. Okay, there are also times when, take that example of fear, where the fear or the rage or the greed or whatever the particular torment is, is really strong. And either you can't even find the bare experience to come back to, or when you do come, for example, those thoughts of fear. Sometimes when you come back, say, to feeling the body, the sensations are so intense or the fear or the greed or the aversion is actually grounded in the sensations that bringing the attention to them just feeds the whole thing. 
a lot of times when um, some suppressed memories, some previous trauma begins to surface, and it might come up physically first, and you think, well, let me just be aware of sensations, and you just touch it, and oh, you're blown away. And then wise attention can be, again, knowing we have a choice, and this is sometimes where we actively direct the attention to something else. So you know times when we'll say, why don't you stop paying attention to the physical sensations and be really aware of hearing and seeing? So it's a choice, not that hearing's better than sensations, but what helps to bring ourselves back into the balanced quality of awareness that can rest at ease in what's arising. When it's so strong, there is no resting at ease, and there gets to be so there's no awareness either. We're just lost in it. So... The next step is to try diverting the attention, but you're still really present. Hearing, hearing, seeing, seeing, hearing, hearing. Staying mindful that the motivation is to bring, come back to that balance of awareness that lets us know what's true. It's not avoidance. It's not suppression. Those are very different. And it's still a commitment to mindful awareness. And you might find sometimes that again just opens up the window of possibility of recognizing again innate wakefulness, even though there's the fear and the trauma. It just opens up a little more space, another window. Now sometimes hearing and seeing isn't going to cut it. You know, everything's just too strong. The Buddha in another place advises as a kind of wise attention, to bring up some inspiring thought. Now, this is a place where we can use wise thought, deliberately think with judiciousness. So he's describing a monk, a yogi, doing the four foundations of mindfulness, basically, contemplating the body, ardent, clearly aware, and mindful. These are the phrases that are used in the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness. And as he thus dwells meditating, some bodily object arises or a physical discomfort or a mental drowsiness causes his mind to wander away to external things, if that sounds familiar. Then Ananda, he's talking to Ananda, that figure's attention, when you're really lost in something else, should be directed to some inspiring object of thought. And as he thus directs his mind to some inspiring object of thought, gradually delight springs up in him. And when he is delighted, then rapture comes. When he experiences rapture, his body calms down. When his body calms down, he can experience joy. Being joyful, his mind is concentrated. Now, I know, have you noticed that before, that actually the conditioning factor for, jo- for concentration is joy or happiness? It is not dukkha, striving, heaviness, self-judgment, or clinging. The conditioning factor for concentration is really happiness. But anyway, so it's using wise reflection on something that inspires you, inspires faith or inspires energy, and then... When he sees that he's again calm and present, you think, the aim on which I set my mind has been achieved, so let me withdraw my mind. In other words, it's time to stop thinking about this inspiring thing now and just be present with balanced attention. 
So that's another use of wise attention. Judiciously, but to see that being mindful of anything that's just naturally occurring just keeps spinning into more torment, bring up inspiration. And sometimes nothing works. And those are the times that will tell you in an interview, it's time to take a walk and be with a lake. It's time to stop trying so hard. It's time to just go sit in that armchair with the fire and imagine everything's done and quit trying to do anything. And the mind can come back into its natural balance. With all of these choices, these skillful means, I find the most helpful thing in uh, working with skillful means, whether it's with wise attention or any of the other balances, is the quality of motivation that leads to the skillful means. So the examples I just gave, those are from the motivation of what brings me back to recognize the purity of presence, resting at ease, balance of heart and mind. The same choice could be made from aversion, from, yeah, this is kind of tormenting now. I don't really like it, so let me think of something more inspiring. You know, or, yeah, fear's coming, and maybe it'd be better if I just went for a walk down to the lake. But really, we could be present with it. You know, we just don't like it. Or the self-judgment of, oh, no, more anger's coming up. And if I pay attention to it, that's really unskillful. It's bad karma, so I better try to do metta. You know, anything can be a skillful means when it's from the motivation of coming back to the balance that lets us rest in whatever's arising. When the motivation shifts into project mentality, trying to fix what's arising, even more trying to fix yourself so you're better and these ugly things don't come up, it's moved from skillful means to same old, same old. You know, unpleasant is bad and pleasant is good and neutral doesn't count. One more aspect of wise attention, and it comes up a lot when Uh, we're working with the energy factor when difficult things are arising. Have you noticed how often the sense is, this is really hard, fear, aversion, greed, so I have to push harder. I can't let up for a moment. Note, 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 note. But of course it's unwise because the noting is either not quite seeing the place we're caught or as if I note this enough, it's going to go away, or the noting is with, I'm so bad, but I've got to note this, but push, 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 push. And you just start to notice all the hindrances, and you never notice a moment when a hindrance isn't present. You notice, you know, yeah, they talk about seven factors of enlightenment, but I haven't seen one for one second, you know. You're aware of greed, and if I say, maybe there's some moments of renunciation. Renunciation, I don't think so. It's really important sometimes then with wise attention to deliberately, it's a kind of similar to bringing up the inspiring thought, deliberately notice the beautiful qualities. This isn't the same as ego, you know, I'm so great. But really, when you're noticing greed, 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 just notice little renunciation. And I've had people come in and say, I did this and I gave up that. Is that renunciation? You know, like it can't count. It is. Renunciation can be so little. You walk out of here, you think the notice board, and you say, no, I'll just keep going. That's a moment of renunciation. 
You don't have to give up everything. It's just little. You're still here. That's a lot of moments of renunciation. (laughs) Notice that, you know. Or even the thought of generosity. You didn't even give it, but you had the thought. That's generosity. It begins with the thought. A moment of compassion to yourself, that's compassion. Thich Nhat Hanh often talks about deliberately bringing up seeds of joy. And when you're really in a dukkha phase where that's all you see, not to pretend that's not happening, not to say, oh, yes, I had this one generous thought, so there's no greed arising, but to balance, to again say, yeah, there's some generosity, and, okay, I can notice this next moment of greed without all the holding around it, the self-referencing around it. Nature is also a wonderful way to connect back again with that simplicity of presence in the moment. You know, we don't tend to fight so much with that nature should be different, you know. So that's a lot of times when we say go outside and be with seeing and hearing. We might not like the wind, but we don't really get too obstreperously upset with it, you know. It's just wind, just air element, you know, literally. And it can bring us back into that balance again. Resting at ease in whatever arises. Recognizing what Shogun Trungpa liked to call our basic goodness. It's not, doesn't matter what's happening. It's not about fixing ourselves. It's not about having our practice go in a certain way. And it's just as accessible to us whether you're in some very subtle state of rapture or we're just walking around normal, you know, eating our muffins at tea time. It's not so important what's happening. It's more that we begin to recognize and trust the balance of being, the balance of presence that opens us. We let go of clinging. We let go of self-referencing. We're not trying to do anything. But we're really here. There's the energy. So that we let go of fixing ourselves and can really ah, recognize this luminous quality, this peaceful abiding here and now, even in the midst of the chaos in the dining room, for example. And hopefully, what begins to happen is, it's not that we have to create that. That's always accessible to us is that we begin to trust it more, to find, I know for me, that a moment of pure presence like that, that wakefulness, becomes so much more fulfilling than any of the seeming goodies that samsara might try to pull my mind into. You know, that piece, oh, what if I don't get the last chocolate chip cookie? It's like, yeah, who cares? You know, this is just what it is. Maybe I'll get it and maybe I won't. And we can just trust that capacity to rest at ease, that that's true, that that's our true potential, and that it's accessible no matter what's happening, so that it becomes more our true home than all the seductions of liking and disliking and judging and getting good practice and everything else. 
another way of describing this moment of pure presence from the Dalai Lama. Why do we endeavor to discover the present moment? Because it is the only place where you will know love. So I just want to end with a short poem that describes that. The power of presence in a moment, just with simple things. Called In Memoriam by Seamus Haney, and it's really a memoriam to his mother. When all the others were away at mass, I was all hers as we peeled potatoes. They broke the silence, let fall one by one, like solder weeping off the soldering iron. Cold comforts set between us, things to share gleaming in a bucket of clean water, and again let fall little pleasant splashes from each other's work would bring us to our senses. So while the parish priest at her bedside went hammer and tongs at the prayers for the dying, and some were responding and some crying, I remembered her head bent towards my head, her breath in mine, our fluent dipping knives, never closer the whole rest of our lives. Let's just sit a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.